Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive podcast. This is a podcast designed for HR teams to give them some support, guidance, and certainly allow them to navigate this current uh, challenging situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, my name is Chris Howard. I'm the Marketing Director at Lays Partners. And today I'm joined by our Managing Director and Co-Founder, Kathy Akratopolo. Hello, Kathy. How are you doing? Hi, Chris. I'm good. Thank you. Enjoying the sun or not quite yet? I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> Maybe enjoy, at the weekend. Enjoying the sun from by looking out the windows at the moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be talking today with Paul Griffin, who is the head of employment. Sorry, the head of employment and labour team at Norton Rose Fulbright. Paul, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. I'm doing well, thanks. Brilliant. Just uh, just before we get started, and obviously, uh, if you can talk to us a little bit about what you do at Norton Rose Fulbright and what your team do as well, um, I thought we'd get you on today because as a very well-known law firm, there's a lot of questions that are certainly being asked, certainly by HR directors, but also businesses. So we've got quite a few questions that uh, we've talked about, you know, things around duty of care, returning to the workplace, furlough, redundancies. We may turn this into a second podcast given the questions that we've got. So we'll certainly have Paul back on for a, a second podcast if we can, but we'll try and get through as, as many questions as, as we can today. But before we do that, Paul, can you just uh, give us a little bit of background on yourself and your team as well? Yeah, sure. So I, um, the whole team deals with everything you might expect in relation to labour and employment law matters. I myself specialise in financial services, technology and transport. We act mostly for uh, employers, large and small employers. Uh, over the last few months, as you would expect, we've been dealing with working from home issues. And then we had all the queries around the job retention scheme and the guidance and the treasury direction. And now we're moving to advising in relation to return to work issues, which are very very much um, at the forefront of everybody's mind and redundancy, sadly, as well. So, Paul, um, I think uh, where we were coming from today, as, as Chris has already outlined, you know, we're really keen, I guess, to have this time with you and delighted that you can join us because, as you can imagine, our client base are predominantly HR directors and their teams. And as they navigate through COVID-19 and all its implications, lots of questions are coming up. And, you know, we're not employment law experts. Um, that's, that's your role. And, and what we're keen to do, I guess, is pick your brains on some of the main topics that seem to be coming up with our, with our clients, which I think actually will be relevant to all HR teams who are, who are sort of dealing with, as you say, the implications of working from home and now the transition back into the workplace. So I thought it would be good to start with a, a broad question um, to get us going, one around this sort of concept of duty of care. And um, we talk a lot about this, and we've talked a lot about it on our webinars up to now, around what all employers having a duty of care to the employees to provide that safe workplace. And, and I guess it would be good to get your sort of more legal perspective of what that really means in practice and the impact on duty of care related to COVID-19. Yeah. Hi, Cathy. That's, that's an interesting one. Let, let me just preface what I say throughout this by underlining that we really are covering three specialist areas here, employment and labour, 
health and safety, and also data protection. Um, I'm very much in the employment and labour box, but obviously the, the, it overlaps onto some of these other areas. But we do have specialists in the firm that um, advise in relation to health and safety and data protection to the extent I'm touching on those issues. Um, Interesting, this duty of care, where does it come from? I think the first area it comes from is the common law. That's judge-made law. So through cases, it's built up over years. And then the second limb, if you like, um, is the Health and Safety at Work Act, which is slightly younger than me, 1974. And it's backed up by a series of regulations dealing with specific things like reporting and the mechanics around um, health and safety. But they both have a common theme, which is that you need to do everything that's reasonably practicable as an employer to protect the safety of your employees. COVID-19, like any other potential danger in the workplace, um, has to be managed through the lens of this legislation and uh, the common law uh, duty. Uh, the duties are going to be complied with by you know, undertaking risk assessments and uh, as to what the risks are in relation to general things, but in the context we're talking about COVID-19, then implement, implementing a safe system of work. So actually looking at things like distancing, um, PPE, cleaning the workplace and ventilation and perhaps even reducing staff numbers and visitors or if you get a lot of deliveries, making them contactless and looking at your entry and exit points and your lifts and screens and barriers, all that sort of stuff would be your implementation in terms of complying with this duty. And finally, um, enforcement. Uh, you, you've got to be seen to be enforcing the rules that you've laid down, you know, through surveillance, disciplinary, perhaps questioning and grievances. So that kind of outlines the duty for you. That's really helpful, Paul. And, and I think it's, you know, particularly front of mind at the moment from an employment point of view as, you know, as we went into lockdown, the government was quite prescriptive about the way, you know, we we entered lockdown overnight, right? In terms of it, a switch was flicked and and, and there we were in lockdown as a, as, a, as a country. But now that we're emerging from lockdown, you know, the, the difference here is, I guess, the onus is on the employer to decide when they feel, you know, if they're in an industry that is valid to be back in the workplace, when they feel it is appropriate to their employees back in i.e that they can um, provide the duty of care that that you know that they are obliged to do and i guess you know that the challenge here is an, an HRD, hrd's challenge here is around understanding how much of what the government has advised in terms of being quite prescriptive on you know office layout and social distancing screens ppe etc how much of that are sort of rules that, that the government has set out and versus guidelines and therefore you know, if, if it becomes impractical for an employer to put in place some of these measures or recommendations, how much are they obliged to do that versus actually just having done the best they can with the guidelines that are available? It's a difficult balance, isn't it? It is difficult. Um, as you said, they, they've issued this COVID secure guidance and um, I think specific guidance in relation to uh, 
eight particular workplace scenarios that they deem safe to be open. There have been some questions about how clear all this is, and I think it was even the subject of a sketch by Matt Lucas recently. (laughs) Yeah, I Um, saw that one. (laughs) These are not laws, though, uh, and uh, they haven't been the subject of any legislative process. But the government advice and guidance is going to be important in determining compliance for employers in dealing with these risks. Um, we, we saw, for instance, under the, the coronavirus job retention scheme, all of a sudden, you know, the, um, the guidance and uh, treasury direction almost seems like law because we've got nothing else to rely on. Other sources, though, of guidance might be ACAS and workers and representatives themselves and the health and safety executive or perhaps the the information commissioner's office. Now, all these things, whilst they're not law, they may be relevant in determining whether laws have been complied with. And even then, it's not the be-all and end-all. So, for example, there's a difference um, between uh, the World Health Organization and the government over the distance required for adequate social distancing. Um, so there may be different points of reference for employers, but the, the government is a good one uh, uh, in terms of guidance to rely on unless you have a good reason from uh, departing from it. And I guess this is why it's important, Paul, for HR teams and their health and safety and operations teams and whoever is accountable for this within a particular business to have documented their risk assessment, documented what they put in place, and I guess documented the control procedures that they're putting in to manage over this period, um, in that at least they're showing that they've done everything they possibly can to mitigate risk. Yes, that's very important. And in fact, if you've got more than 50 employees, you need to publish that assessment on your uh, website. But it is important in any event, because that's going to be your defence if you do meet any claims that uh, uh, you haven't done things properly, either from individuals or even the health and safety executive, for example. Yeah, that's record keeping is a very important element. Yeah, so so let's come on to that topic, actually, because it's one of the areas we wanted to discuss with you around exposure, I guess. You know, worst case scenario here is that as an employer, um, you know, you've done everything you can, you've followed the guidelines, you've looked at the health and safety executive guidelines and and, um, put in place everything you think you can do and you've documented that. Um, And then an employee returns to work in the workplace and um, contracts COVID-19. Now, clearly, the root, the root, or the source, I guess, of where they contracted COVID nineteen is up for debate. But, but if they've contracted COVID nineteen and are making the claim that it was in the workplace, what's your exposure as a, as an employer? Obviously, if you've done everything you can, I assume you, 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 your exposure is limited. Uh, but, but actually, if the employee can identify shortcomings or gaps in what you said you were doing and what actually happened, I guess, I guess there is a level of exposure for employer, employers. Yes, there is, uh, unfortunately. I, I mean, you can you can do all that is possible, but um, there is there's still a um, there's still a risk that employees will be able to bring a claim. Um, you, you know that that's going to arise, perhaps uh, as I mentioned before. You know about the the, the difference in in the science behind what we're being told and. Um, 
you know, uh, how that's going to how that's going to change and it, with the benefit of hindsight, but with the available information that employers had at the particular time. I think it's important to consult with employees and uh, ask them uh, questions about, uh, uh, you know, what they feel comfortable with and, uh, and the, the rules that you put in place that then comment on it, make suggestions, observations, etc. But, you know, there's always the specter of liability. And even if it doesn't come directly at you, it's going to become come from the angle of kind of vicarious liability because all uh, employers are vicariously liable for the acts or omissions of their employees. So um, even if you've done everything you can, there might be an individual that doesn't, for example, comply with what you've laid down. And if that affects anybody else, that might give rise to liability. Realistically, it's quite difficult to get out of that liability sometimes. You have to show that um, what that person was doing was in no way in the course of their employment yeah. uh, and therefore you shouldn't be vicariously liable for it. And I, and I guess contravening what they've been asked to do or documented as sort of the guidelines that they were supposed to be following. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and related to that, so if, if you are in a situation where you as an employer have put in place all the necessary steps that you are is physically possible for you to do for your employees where we do then have instances where employees are not sticking to the rules if you like not sticking to the social distancing requirements or not not following the procedures that you've asked um, them to follow I guess in the immediate case they were in sort of disciplinary situations and 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 would that be fair in terms of the fact that someone is not following your rules specific to COVID-19 as opposed to what you might have in place in normal business as usual work and Mm. could that ultimately I guess result in a fair dismissal Mm. given that you've just been talking about the sort of vicarious liability that comes with being an employer? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I, it will be possible to discipline employees who are not following the rules on on the basis of their their failure to follow a lawful and reasonable instruction given by the employer. I mean, that's a well trodden path. You you should, as I said before, consult with employees and their reps first, so you've got a good um, starting point in relation to those rules. But you must also make clear in the the new policies that there will be a disciplinary sanction attached to this for failing to comply. And that will include summary dismissal. Countless cases of unfair dismissal by employers have been lost because they failed to make that issue clear. And they've tried to, for example, summarily dismiss an individual for failing to comply with a a rule. Now, whether dismissal is going to be appropriate will depend on the circumstances. You know, I don't know, um, deliberately flouting the rules uh, or accidental, for example, yeah. um, you know, increasing the, the numbers allowed in the canteen by one or not declaring a raging temperature and then breaking social distancing rules might be yeah. a, a sort of contrast. Also, you, you may have to re- react to employees bringing grievances out of your response to those grievances will be um, under the microscope. If the grievance was justified, you'll be explaining to them what um, what you've done to address the problem. In broad terms, I don't think you would go into detail about you, what you've done to a specific uh, individual. And again, there's that issue of vicarious liability as well. You may have to deal with that in this context. 
And I guess, you know, that that grievance scenario could be in the situation where someone has a grievance with you as the employer in terms of the environment that you're asking them to work in versus a grievance against an individual who might be their line manager or a colleague, for example, who is not following the rules as, as they should. And therefore, they feel are putting them in danger. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I think we can expect to um, see a lot more of those. Yeah, and I guess therefore, from the HRD's point of view, it is as, as you as you rightly say, you know, making sure that that your policies that you have or your the procedures you're putting in place are documented, and that as part of that, you're very clear about the implications of not following the requests or the rules, uh, and therefore that could result in disciplinary and ultimately dismissal, and that also that you have really robust disciplinary and grievance procedures established already that you can then rely on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you think about it from an employee who's um, accused of this, they're going to be looking at things like, I didn't know it wasn't clear enough. You didn't say that a breach of this would be as so serious that it could end up in summary dismissal. Couldn't find the policies on the internet. All these yeah. sorts of things will yeah, be used. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I guess, you know, absolutely. Therefore, the, the, the nature of how you communicate the new rules um, and document and the accessibility of that information will be critical as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we've come across several instances. So, for example, on people's intranet sites where links are defunct, for example, and that they're meant to be linking to vital policies. That's the type of thing that you're going to have thrown back in your face if you're really trying to enforce these important measures you're going to have to put in place. Yeah. And it's really good advice, Paul. Thank you. On, on a slightly broader topic, then, the nature of the duty of care before we move on from, from duty of care um, to another area and, and how far it extends, right? So we know that obviously the employer has accountability for duty of care in the workplace, but every employee has to get to work and has to get home from work. And we know that in COVID-19 situation, there are risks in just doing that. Um, or if you're in a shared building and you can't obviously control the nature of every aspect of someone's work experience from the minute they leave their house to the minute they get home again. How far does the duty of care requirement cover any of that as opposed to the minute they walk through the door into your workplace? Yeah, exactly. Like the travelling to work piece. Well, and most of your duties will relate to the work environment as an employer. Okay, for for some employees, though, that that if they um, travel around the country, for example, uh, what constitutes the undertaking for the health and safety legislation um, will be much wider and won't just be the the HQ. So you need to bear that in mind. What you're actually asking the employee to do by getting to work and traveling on public transport transport systems, for example, may be relevant, though, to your, your employment relationship with that individual, okay? And whether you're acting reasonably by asking to asking them to do that, it's going to be significant. And let me explain something that um, will come up again and again, I think, in this context, is that uh, under the Employment Rights Act, Section 70, uh, 44 and, and 100, they deal with situations where uh, an employee perceives imminent and serious danger. And if in response to that, they suffer dismissal or a detriment by the employer, 
then they will be able to bring a claim of um, compensation for the detriment or unfair dismissal for the dismissal. And, and you can see how these two sections can be relied on very much in this context. So, you know, my employer is asking me to do this. I perceive imminent and serious danger as a result of doing it. You know, if what follows um, from that is any sort of detriment or dismissal, then there may be something to think about there. Now, the government has said, avoid public transport where possible. Okay, well, thanks for that. Um, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> they have said that. Um, and the relevance here is it's not whether you've offered a safe place of work, which you may well have done, but the, the, the train and the tube is not their workplace. But can you or, or can your employee rather legitimately refuse to make that journey? I mean, there'll be overcrowding at peak times and uh, that might be a real issue for social distancing. So um, I think employers have to think about this and, uh, you know, listen to what employees are saying. And I think, you know, that brings us on to that next topic, I guess, of people coming back to work and their right to refuse I guess uh, you know if they feel that they're in as you say imminent danger as, as set out in the act then there is a right I guess on that that to not suffer detriment as you're as you're explaining but ultimately it's not so so if an employee refuses to come to work because they don't feel safe clearly the communication aspect here is key in terms of between the employer and the employee having a dialogue around the way in which the employer is making that workplace as safe as possible. But as you're saying, you know, understanding the employee's point of view around how they get to work and their own personal circumstances. But ultimately, that the employee does have that right if they feel they're in imminent danger, is, is my understanding. Yes, it, it is. And um, you, you've also got to think about who you're dealing with as well. So, uh, you know, to give you an example, we have these categories of vulnerable people. Vulnerable people, actually, the only point of that, that definition is, is relevant to whether you, you are allowed to be outside visiting vulnerable people. It doesn't really have any other significance. But there's this new definition of clinically extremely vulnerable people. And uh, most of those people are going to have a disability for the purposes of the Equality Act. And maybe some just vulnerable people and even others uh, might come under that definition as well. There is some talk of the long-lasting effects of COVID-19 and uh, the requirement for a disability is that it may last longer than 12 months. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that might fit under the umbrella of disability discrimination. And you're going to have to think about, well, if I'm insisting on those people coming back, is this disability discrimination? What reasonable adjustments am I going to have to make, um, yep. which is required under the Equality Act for disabled people? You're also going to have to think of, you know, pregnant people. You're, you're going to have to um, make sure that you're not inadvertently discriminating against people because of their age, because they are vulnerable, invulnerable categories. Even the, we, we don't know the science behind it, but the BAME community seems to have suffered disproportionately from this virus. virus. And you've got to um, consider how exposed they might be in relation to this. So all these are potential dis discrimination issues, which if you just bowl on in there and say, you know, I, I want you back, and that's the end of the matter without considering these, they're all kind of bear traps for employers. Yeah, 
and I guess depending on your size as an employer, the need to have pretty much individual conversations in cases where people don't feel comfortable coming back to understand the root cause behind their their concerns. It, you know, you're going to have to put the effort in to have those conversations to be able to make appropriate judgments, I guess. That, that, that's exactly right. You know, most of the claims are going to be, um, in my view, around indirect discrimination. And that simply means that you've applied a rule to everybody, but the impact of the rule is different amongst uh, people with various different protected characteristics. Now, all indirect discrimination claims are they're capable of objective justification. But you as an employer, um, for your objective justification, you're going to have to think about, well, one, what is my legitimate aim? That's part of that defense. That's fine. I need to get everybody back to work. I need to get the business back on its feet. But two, is this what I've put in place or what I've asked, is it a proportionate means of achieving that aim? And the answer to that is going to be looking at, well, could they continue working from home? If they're worried about um, shielding a relative, for example, or a partner, could they isolate in their own house? Could they be particularly isolated in the workplace? Have you spoken to the individuals? You know, what are their particular concerns? And I, I think you, you also have to have, you have to have one eye on, the the impact of individuals of asking them um, to to do that to return to work because of course if you're shielding with a very vulnerable partner who could become seriously ill if they contract this virus then that's a that's a big psychological burden for an individual okay and if, if even if you and your heart heart think it's safe for them to return uh, a, a very kind of comprehensive communication exercise will have to be undertaken with them to convince them that's the case. Oh, actually, it's, it's pretty complex. I mean, these things are never black and white, I guess, Paul, as, as we know. So it's a pretty complex, careful procedure around asking employees to come back and having those conversations with anyone who has concerns to understand why they are concerned and, and whether the measures you're putting in place will alleviate those concerns or actually whether there's factors that are outside of your control, as you say, and that they have individuals in their household who are who are high risk um, or very high risk categories or for example they haven't got the childcare in that schools may or may not be up and up and running by then and and therefore actually is it fair and reasonable to insist on an employee comes back who would normally rely on school or nurseries to give them the childcare that they need to be able to work for example that's uh, that's another interesting one that's um, likely to come out uh, um, a lot. Uh, um, I think first of all, you would be looking at the um, uh, emergency time off provisions to look after dependents. That's a reasonable amount of time off for individuals, and it's unpaid. It's it is all about where childcare arrangements have been upset because of something that uh, may not have been foreseen, or you know it, it could be that it's foreseen, but you're you're planning for the inevitable upheaval. Uh, the, the the right is actually to time for the time off to to make other arrangements. Okay, it's not time off to look after the kids. So. Um, that's relevant to what a reasonable period uh, is here. 
So um, you're going to have to think uh, in your own context and who you're dealing with, what a reasonable period is, depending on what they tell you. But after that period, you're left with the dilemma, well, what do I do here? Um, uh, and you're going to have to be careful because, again, that's potentially an indirect sex discrimination claim. Uh, um, still, um, most primary caregivers of children are female, so that's where the indirect sex discrimination element comes. And your objective justification, you know, um, why are you insisting on this person coming back despite the childcare arrangements? Is it impossible for them to work from home? Is it a critical business function? Can uh, reduced hours be put in place? Can you explore whether their partner can help out in this context? All these sort of things, I think, need to be looked at before you would be happy saying you must turn up on Monday morning now. Yeah, and there are implications if you don't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think the other thing that strikes me on this as well, that schools may well open on the 1st of June, for example. It's in the news every day, right? There seem to be um, toing and froing as to to the latest um, perspective on it. But if an individual's school for their children is back up and running, but the individual doesn't feel comfortable that the school has made necessary (laughs) changes to make them feel comfortable that their children should be at that school, that's an added complexity again, I guess, if that means that they then can't go to work if the the child care option is there. But as you're saying, you know, that's a case of case by case scenario where actually understanding someone's concerns and why they are therefore not available for work and what what is reasonable in terms of what the employer can do in those situations. Yes, exactly. And, um, you you know, you would be looking at that section 44 and section 100 again, perhaps that I was looking at, because that's all about a person being in serious or imminent danger. That person doesn't have to be the employee, could be um, somebody else. So I think that's a real issue, Cathy, because although we've got um, the the idea that schools for certain pupils are going to open on the 1st of June, it's not going to be the case in all schools. I know uh, my youngest son's school, for example, they've decided not to open at all for the remainder of the term on the basis that it's such an old Victorian building, they can't possibly implement social distancing in any meaningful way. Yeah. And, and so I guess, final question for today, Paul, because I'm, I'm conscious of, of time. We, we haven't touched on the whole furlough topic yet, which I think um, we'll need to come back to. Given the complexities involved in returning to work and the, the need to have individual conversations and, and a level of dialogue between the employee and the employer, is one option here for employers to consider if it's appropriate for their workforce, depending on how many people they need back which, with which type of skills, to consider asking for volunteers. So for those individuals who are maybe willing to come back because maybe they're living on their own or they, they, aren't, they aren't shielding anyone, they don't have any high-risk category individuals in their house or not, they don't have any childcare challenges. Is that one route that employers could reasonably take to try and do this in the most fair and reasonable way? Yes, I, I think it would be a sensible way of dealing with the issue. Uh, I think, however, as an employer, you'd want to give some thought to perhaps communicating this proposal because you may have to revisit it if you don't get your required coverage you know so it's it's all very well saying okay well we'll ask for volunteers but you would probably want to say however you know if we, if we don't get um the the number of employees or the type of employees required for business continuity well we might have to think of something else yeah. i think consultation will be key here and also the non-volunteers they in that 
situation they may not communicate why they haven't volunteered and uh, their their needs requirements worries and that's going to be important for your future planning so why not find that out now so you can anticipate how you might deal with all these issues yeah understood no that's really good advice paul thank you Mm. in terms of the other topics that we were keen to sort of pick your brains on paul i know we wanted to get into furlough arrangements and um, redundancies as well which i think we will say for um, another podcast so chris over to you in terms of closing but i personally just want to say a big thank you to paul because i think you know we've covered an awful lot and hopefully of, of great value to our hrd listeners yes thank you very much paul i mean this is, uh, as we've all been talking about for a number of weeks now, this is a real challenge because dealing with human beings and you know, the variables around every human being and every different set of circumstances they have, you know, my set of circumstances are completely different to yours, Kathy, and your set of circumstances are different to Paul's and Paul's is different to somebody who maybe lives next door. So this is a, this is a very, very challenging time. I think it's great that we've been able to get Paul on. So Paul, thank you very, very much for coming on and we'll get you on again to talk furlough and redundancies. What we'll do with that, that podcast will be out next week. So it'll be a week from today that we'll actually release uh, the second podcast where we'll get Paul to talk specifically around the furlough challenges and some of the redundancy challenges as well. So that leaves me with nothing more to say other than, um, Kathy, thank you for being compare and uh, question master today. Pleasure. And Paul, thank you very, very much for joining us. Pleasure. Great talking to you. And we will speak to you next time on the HR on the Offensive podcast. Mm-hmm.